We're back with another edition of the Federalist Radio Hour. I'm Emily Jashinsky, culture editor here at The Federalist. As always, you can email the show at radio at thefederalist.com. Follow us on Twitter at FDRLST. Make sure to subscribe wherever you download your podcasts as well. Today, we're so lucky to get a slice of Kristen Hawkins' time literally on the eve uh, or the morning of the eve of the March for Life. <laughs> Kristen, of course, is president of Students for Life, and you uh, have a campaign called The Final Fight for Freedom. Kristen, that I'd love for you to just start off by telling us a little bit about that campaign and where folks can go on your website to learn a little bit about it themselves. Sure. Well, you know, as we're getting ready to mourn 49 years of Roe versus Wade, you know, so many of us, hundreds of thousands of us are going to be gathering here in Washington, D.C. to 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 mourn this anniversary and to say that Roe should never reach 50. There's a lot of conversation about what's next in the pro-life movement. Where do we go after the Supreme Court decision comes down this June in the Dobbs v. Jackson case? And that's why we've launched this final fight for freedom campaign and really this battle book. You can go to studentsforlife.org slash fight. You can download the entire battle book. And we put it together to give you a glimpse of what we've been working towards at Students for Life for the past 15 years and where we believe the pro-life movement must go. Um, We really believe in many ways this is the final fight for freedom in our country. That the the first fight for freedom was that fight for America's uh, self-independence, right? Our self-governance to fight against this empire that said that we no longer had the right to govern. We had no right to govern ourselves. And we won that fight with the Revolutionary War. And then we saw a a second great fight in, in America with the bloody civil war of saying that we believe every person uh, deserves the right to be a full citizen, uh, deserving of rights, no matter their skin color. Um, and, and in seventeen, in 1973, we saw seven men uh, at the Supreme Court say that, well, only certain people get that fr- freedom, that right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness that is laid out in our Constitution. And those are people that are born. But those who are pre-born uh, do not have those rights. Uh, and this, you know, grossly decided uh, Roe versus Wade has really altered the fabric of our society. And this is a fight for freedom that we believe every American should really care about. Because as Abraham Lincoln said, you know, in, in giving freedom to the slave, we're ensuring freedom to the free, that until these pre-born children have that freedom to be born, uh, none of us will really be free. And uh, really, all of our lives will be at stake. And we've seen this for the last now almost 50 years, this dehumanization uh, that has gone on in our society. And we can see it in so many re- regards um, r- you know, right now. Um, and so this is why we're encouraging conservatives across the spectrum to join this final fight for freedom. So um, you can go to, like I said, studentsforlife.org slash fight, download the battle book, learn more about what we've been doing and really the case for why every conservative needs to be involved in this final fight. Yeah, when I heard the the title of your campaign was Final Fight, immediately Dobbs is what came to mind. This is the March for Life before we will get a decision um, in either direction in the Dobbs case. And I want to ask Kristen why it is that as a a pro-life activist who works on this issue every single day, what is on the line um, mm-hmm. when it comes to Dobbs? Why is this single Supreme Court case, which a lot of maybe um, not super politically involved observers, casual news readers, they might say the final fight for freedom, really? Why? What is on the line um, when that decision is, is rendered? Well, the simple answer is hundreds of thousands of children. 
That's what's online. Uh, lives are at stake. So if you don't know about the Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization case, it's based on a Mississippi law that was passed a few years ago, signed into law in Mississippi, that bans abortions, painful abortions that occur 15 weeks or later, dismemberment abortions, where the child is too large to be sucked through the cannula, that actually has to be dismembered in order to be killed inside his or her mother. This law was passed, uh, was signed into law, and immediately the only abortion facility in the state of Mississippi objected to this. And uh, it, the case has made its way up to the Supreme Court. It was significant that the Supreme Court actually took the case, decided to hear this case, um, in large part, we believe, thanks to uh, the appointees uh, that President Trump ensured and are now sitting on the Supreme Court. Uh, legal analysts on both sides of the abortion debate aisle agree that What's likely coming in June, at the end of June, when they dis announce their decision in this case, uh, will likely be a victory for the pro-life movement in some regard, whether it's an upholding of the Mississippi law, which would then allow states across the country to ban second, third trimester abortions when we know children feel pain, uh, or it could go as far as reversing Roe versus Wade in its entirety, which is, in fact, in the oral arguments in December 1st, is what the state of Mississippi argued for for a complete reversal of Roe, meaning uh, the decision of abortion would go back to the states, which instantly we would see dozens of states line up to ban abortions, to make abortions unavailable in their state or heavily restrict abortions in their state, uh, saving hundreds of thousands of lives. Based on the oral arguments, um, which we saw play out just a couple months back, um, Kristen, what do you expect? I mean, that's a hard thing to predict, but based on those oral arguments and what we all heard, it was a, a very sort of good moment for transparency, I thought, to listen to how the justices react. And it's, yeah. of course, very difficult to um, read too much into those conversations. But what did you think what, about what sure. you heard? I was very guarded going into the oral arguments. We were out there the night before the Supreme Court uh, uh, hearing, praying the, the pro-life generation, students five. We always have to reserve the rally space for the pro-life movement. So we were out there all night, the whole day of the arguments. I actually listened to the arguments after I left the Supreme Court while sitting at the DCA airport. And um, I, I left, you know, kind of I turned off that podcast and I, I was very optimistic at that moment because the state of Mississippi, the solicitor general there went, didn't just say uphold this law. Um, he went as far as saying we need to reverse Roe versus Wade. States should have the right to protect the interests of all of their citizens born and pre-born. Um, and the justices went right off the bat asking questions about, well, why aren't we neutral on abortion when the Constitution is so obviously neutral on abortion? The Constitution, there is no right to abortion in the Constitution. or um, and, and, and the pro-abortion... there's a right to life. Yes, exactly. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Um, and and the, the pro-abortion movement's arguments were just, I guess... I was astounded at how terrible they were, that they had all this time to prepare and they had nothing better to say than essentially no backseas. You just can't take it back. There was there was really no legal argument that they could make. Um, and, and that's that, that that it's I mean, you would kind of expect that. Right. Because abortion is and this is what we talk about, the final fight for freedom battle plan, uh, which is student for life.org slash fight. I have to say that again um, is 
there's a fundamental um, hierarchy of rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And with abortion, we flipped that. It's a disordering. We have said your pursuit of happiness uh, is more important than another person's right to life. And every time in American history, we have done that. And the Supreme Court has done that with Dredd, with Plessy. They've always had to go back and reverse their decisions because it's always led to catastrophe. It's always led to suffering, subjugation, and death. Is the country ready for uh, Roe to be overturned? And the answer to that question, of course, is obvious. Um, But if I'm playing devil's advocate, Kristen, there are a lot of people, um, and I think probably a lot of people in Republican politics, the Republican establishment, um, who probably have a great deal of worry for what would happen if uh, the Supreme Court renders a decision that overturns Roe in an instant in this country. Um, And the every institution, popular culture, academia, um, the political establishment is pro-abortion um, and will be telling people it's the apocalypse and it's the end of the world. <laughs> and they live literally in the handmaid's tale. Um, yeah. So is the country how would you answer that question? You know, is, is the country ready for something for such dramatic change um, mm. really in an instant? Absolutely. And this is actually what we've been fighting for and building in the pro-life movement for more than 50 years. There's, you know, nearly 2000 pregnancy centers, maternity homes have already been established serving communities for literally decades that provide all the resources and support women and families need who are experiencing a crisis pregnancy. You you will hear uh, leading up to June fear mongering uh, to the nth degree that we aren't that women are going to be subjugated to back alley abortions, that there's not going to be any support. But that's actually just plainly false. Uh, we are ready. Um, we have built, a, you know, at Students for Life, for example, our Standing With You initiative, we're actually working on campuses to to change policies to support pregnant and parenting women uh, and to make our universities uh, more inclusive uh, for parenting and pregnant students. So no woman ever again feels like she has to choose between the life of her child and her education. Um, and so you know, with, with Students for Life, with the pro-life generation, no woman is standing alone. And that's true, very much true for the entire pro-life movement. So we are very much ready. Um, what's interesting is we just released a new poll this week with our Dimitri Institute for Pro-Life Advancement. And we found that even millennials and Gen Z, you know, the, the largest voting block in America, the most liberal voting block, I would say, in, in America, even though this generation polls very liberal on many issues of our day, when you ask them about abortion, if you, um, you actually find a very nuanced response that when they find out what Roe versus Wade is, the extremism that Roe versus Wade allows, the fact that we are only one of seven countries that allows abortion up until the moment of birth. Uh, Even these very liberal or democratic-leaning, independent-leaning young people are aghast. They cannot believe that. Eight out of 10 young people want to have the opportunity to vote on the abortion policies in their state. Um, They're sick of being told by seven men in the Supreme Court in 1973 with bad science what abortion policy in America really should be. Um, They understand that women really should be empowered to 
to be able to choose both. So uh, it's not all bad news when you're, when you're talking about young people. Now, like I said, if you listen to the other side, you listen to Planned Parenthood and the fear mongering on the other side, they will say we're not ready. Uh, you know, women aren't going to have any rights. I mean, it, it's it's really this very bleak picture that they paint uh, of what will instantly happen once Roe's reversed. Like I'll no longer have the right to vote or drive a car or, you know, run an organization like I only can be a mom barefoot pregnant in the kitchen. Like it's unbelievable the rhetoric that they will use. And we will see. Um, I, I definitely think you will see a ramping up of uh, vandalizations of threats. We have certainly seen that students for life on campuses. The cyberbullying is off the charts of pro-life students, um, the discrimination of pro-life students. We've actually had to hire our own uh, general counsel this year because we we work with pro-life uh, and conservative uh, pro bono legal groups to help defend the rights of our 1300 groups. But we have so many cases now. It's 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 gotten unbelievable. So I, I think that we will see definitely a ratcheting up. We saw at the Women's March uh, this October, the rhetoric that was used. Um, we were out in 24 cities. We had hundreds of students countering the women's marches with pro-woman, pro-life signs. And we have never seen before the level of violence uh, that we saw at the Women's March. We had pregnant staffers that we had to quickly evacuate from certain situations because they were being physically threatened, shoved at these women's marches. And it's really because of the rhetoric that the other side is using, this fear-mongering that they're attempting to uh, push through. As our listeners know, we are unrepentant followers of celebrity trends and celebrity news at Federalist Radio Hour, but recently I learned something new about an under-the-radar investment that some of the ultra-wealthy have been quietly funneling their money into for generations, and as you can imagine, it really piqued my interest. Famous folks are, of course, known for touting their art collections, but you no longer have to be a coastal elite to invest in one of the oldest asset classes of all time, because Masterworks is making adding art to your portfolio possible. Masterworks gives investors, just like you, access to the asset class that had low correlation to the S&P 500 over the past two decades. Masterworks even achieved a 32% and 31% net return for investors based on the sale of a Banksy and condo piece in 2020 and 2021, respectively. Now, you don't have to be a hedge fund manager to invest in multi-million dollar paintings from iconic artists like Picasso, Warhol, and Banksy. And Masterworks has results. They've sold two paintings that netted their investors a 30% plus IRR in 2020 and 2021. Even better, our listeners get priority access to their newest offerings. Simply go to masterworks.io slash federalist to get started. That's masterworks.io slash federalist. Before deciding to invest, carefully review the important disclosures at masterworks.io slash disclaimer. And I think the stakes for the left were exactly, you explained it so beautifully that what they're doing is, is switching that the, the prioritization of rights, the, the right to pursue your happiness. Mm-hmm. Um, that's so interesting because abortion has become central to that. That is the, the sort of primary aim of the, the pro-abortion movement. And they believe, and they will repeat this uh, when the, the Dobbs decision comes out, that in order to be a fully actualized woman, you must have the the right to abortion. Otherwise, you are ultimately still being controlled. Well, it's actually a person with a uterus, by the way. Yes, yes. Oh, gosh. It's hard to keep up, but it is so important. Um, (laughs) So what do you say to uh, a young woman 
when, let's say, the Dobbs decision goes, uh, you know, God willing, um, in the right direction to a young woman who has been raised in a culture mm. that does prize abortion, that actually reveres abortion as the the gateway to women's fulfillment um, and, and women's agency, um, who maybe hasn't paid close attention to these issues over the years, but has been conditioned by our popular culture and academia and political establishment to see this as, as a right and a good thing. Um, and is scared. You know, the Dobbs decision comes down and it's, it is good for the pro-life movement. Um, Roe is overturned. However that decision looks like, what do you say to young women who um, may, you know, think this is, may, may buy the apocalyptic rhetoric of the left? A couple of things. The first message is you are strong. You are stronger than you think you are. As women, we are very strong. As mothers, we're called to be even stronger. And there's nothing harder in life, and I can speak from personal experience, than being a mother. But you can do it. You can seek fulfillment in your education and in your career and also being a mother. You do not have to choose both. The uh, The Planned Parenthood and, and the rhetoric you hear from the abortion industry is, no, you can't. And the, and the, and the message that we have in the pro-life movement is, yes, you can. And you can see that example throughout the pro-life movement. So that's the first message is you're stronger than you think you are. The second message is no woman stands alone. In the pro-life movement, in the pro-life generation, we stand beside you and we realize the difficulties that may face that you may be facing, your unique uh, challenges and circumstances that you may have to overcome, but you don't stand alone. There is a whole army. Uh, there is a whole generation that stands with you, that will stand beside you, walk with you. Um, and we're ready and willing to do that hard work um, because we believe in our pro-life movement, the, the largest human rights movement in the history of the world, um, that our mission is really two, twofold. It's not just to simply make abortion illegal. It's also to make abortion unthinkable. And that comes with standing beside her. Mm. So another question kind of along those lines, um, why do you think the there are changes um, that we've seen with younger people in their attitudes towards abortion. Like you said, your your poll picks up on some nuance there. Um, and it's surprising, I think, to people on the left when they see those polls. And those polls have been coming out steadily over the past five to 10 years with millennials and now Gen Z. Um, what do you think it is that um, makes abortion one of those issues where younger Americans haven't swung very far to the left? What's different? Well, there's a few things. Um, one, I would say the science, right? The science, uh, the technology that we have today uh, sh clearly shows that the antiquated talking points of the 1970s do not carry any weight. That is not simply what is inside of a mother is not simply a blob of tissue with no meaning that we have that window to the womb, the ultrasound. This generation has all seen their brothers and sisters via 3D ultrasound, 3D. They saw their brothers and sisters little noses and what their, their their siblings were going to look like before they are even born. So they know what's inside of her is, in fact, a human being, a baby. Uh, I would say that's number one, you know, reason why those t talking points don't work. I would say the other um, factor weighing into this is, is violence, that this is a generation that very much is concerned about the vulnerable and wants to stand up against violence. 
And you can you can argue a lot of things about abortion, but you can't say abortion is not violence because at the end of the day, the job of the abortionist is to ensure a beating heart stops beating through any means possible. If, a, if there are two beating hearts left in that operating room, the abortionist has failed in their job. That is fundamentally an act of violence and it violates the sensibilities of this generation. I think the third reason uh, you'll see young people, despite being more liberal on many other issues that we can disagree with them on and try to convert them on later, um, is that they all know someone who's had an abortion, uh, understanding that uh, having the abortion did not stop the abusive relationship that they were in. Uh, they didn't take them out of that bad situation. Uh, it, they may have felt it was a temporary reprieve, um, but it didn't stop the poverty, uh, didn't stop the abuse from coming. Um, and they seen the struggle that their sisters and that their roommates and that their friends have endured after the abortion. Um, and I think probably the, and I think about this a lot, so I have a lot of theories of why. I think the other reason is um, because this generation has been raised with such a like girl power, um, you can do anything. It's so funny because the left will say, and you'll hear, you know, girl power, girls, can, you're strong and do anything. Yeah, but they're not strong enough to have an abortion. It's actually like they counter their own messaging all the time. Um, mm -hmm. So are we really strong enough? Can we do whatever we want? Can we take on the world? Well, that also means we can be moms because we're actually kind of superheroes. We can do something half the population can't do. I'm something that occurred to me while you were talking is the proliferation of the abortion pill. Mm -hmm. um, and yes. I'm wondering if you if you have seen that the proliferation of the abortion pill, which does have uh, there's so many horror stories that I know that you have heard um, and uh, they're just unimaginable. Yeah. Do you think that has uh, backfired at all uh, for the pro-abortion movement just because there there have been so many just awful experiences with it, but it's something that feels so easy. I mean, even people who don't have physically horrific experiences with it feel sort of psychologically tricked. Sometimes you hear that it, the ease of it um, yeah. doesn't sort of match up with your your uh, uh, reaction as a as a mother. Yeah, I, I'm so glad you brought that up because I think that's a very important point. And that's something that we actually hit upon in the final fight for freedom, our battle book, because this is really where the fight is going. So once again, studentselect.org slash fight, download the battle book, you'll get all the details. But this is something we've been working on for about five years at Students for Life because it started uh, in California with a bill to mandate that all state universities dispense this chemical abortion pill on campus. We fought for three years. Uh, we eventually lost uh, after government. Governor Gavin Newsom, you know, the king of abortion, uh, took over uh, power in that state. But um, this is this is where the abortion industry is going. If you want to talk about preparing for a post war America, like we're preparing for a post war America, what the other side is doing is they're preparing uh, for a post row by ramping up uh, chemical abortions. That's why you saw last uh, this December the FDA. Uh, throw away all common sense safety regulations on the abortion pill. That's why there's a fight right now in the U.S. Senate over the confirmation of the FDA head uh, over the abortion pill. 
um, this is a, as you mentioned, a very dangerous drug. Um, on it, it, and it's so ironic that we're having, you know, these debates in the Senate about the FDA head and, and taking away the REMS because on the same day the FDA pulled the Johnson Johnson COVID vaccine this past April because it killed a woman. On the same exact day, the FDA came out and said, we're planning on loosening all common sense regulations. Like these are regulations like confirming she's pregnant, confirming the location of the pregnancy and make sure it's not a deadly epitomic pregnancy, making sure she's not RH negative. So she's, you know, she could be rendered infertile if she's RH negative and has an abortion and doesn't get a Rogan shot. They said they're going to take away all regulations on chemical abortion pill, even though we know dozens of women have died in America through this chemical abortion. It is these, the stories are absolutely horrific. We have, um, an, we have a website, this is chemicalabortion.com where we actually just go into, uh, chat groups and we mentor and we try to find women who are in crisis, who need help and not even looking for, not even looking for these stories. Women will come into these chat rooms, these pregnancy chat rooms, and they will discuss their chemical abortions in gross detail. And it is unbelievable. Some of these women say, you know, I don't even regret my abortion. I'm still pro-choice. But let me tell you how terrible this abortion is. And please, if you're considering this abortion, this type of abortion, don't get this type of abortion because of how terrible it is. Uh, it is unbelievable. I mean, we have 70 pages. We handed this booklet out to members of Congress of saying, you have to do something about this drug. Not only is it killing children, it's maiming women and scarring them for life. We have girls who come up screaming us on campuses when we're doing educational displays. And once we get them calmed down, we start talking to them about why are you here? Why are you so angry? They will open up their phone and show us pictures of the children that they've aborted. Because what happens is you take the first pill in the abortion facility, um, you take the second pill at home, and then you're told to sit on the toilet and to just keep flushing and to not look. Do not look in your toilet bowl. But a lot of girls look and then they see the child they've aborted and it is traumatizing for these young women who before if it's a surgical abortion she'll never see her child the child's whisked away to the products of conception lab they the abortionist makes sure that every piece of the child has been removed she never sees her child and a chemical abortion she can see her child in her toilet bowl. And so this is, this is a deadly, deadly abortion for her. Uh, it's traumatizing for her. And this is actually where the abortion industry is going because for them, this is their way to continue their industry when abortions made illegal in dozens of states after row. Because a pharmacist in California, for example, will be able to mail an abortion drug to a girl in Mississippi. And this, and, and they won't have to pay for her to go to a clinic. They're not going to have to pay for the disposal of the child, but they're still going to make their profits. And that's really where we've been focusing on passing state legislation with our Students for Life Action organization to ban chemical abortion sales online, to ban them outright, uh, working with attorneys generals in states to, to, to stop these drugs from flowing into their states in a post-Roe America. But that's really, I'm so glad you brought that up because that's their post-row plan. 
I was going to I was just going to ask you actually about exactly that, the mailing to different states. Um, and it seems to me that state level Republican parties have been they're closer to the grassroots of mm-hmm. the conservative movement and have been fairly good on this issue. Um, and actually, I was backstage at an event a couple of months ago uh, with the former vice president, Mike Pence, and he had a very warm welcome for you, Kristen. And I know you and the entire pro-life movement had a, a great working relationship with the Trump administration. That said, I still um, maintain, and I think I said this on our podcast as soon as we learned that the Supreme Court was going to take up the Dobbs case, that there were people quaking over at the RNC and that, you know, mm-hmm. in, in positions, you know, the, the Republican consultants and here Thank in the Beltway you. were quaking. I think <laughs> yes. we just became best friends. Great. Okay. Well, so tell me about that. I mean, it's, it, tell me about how you think the, uh, is the Republican party, the Republican establishment, uh, prepared to no. defend that decision? No. And it's interesting because there are going to be a lot of folks that you thought were Republican, you know, uh, pro-life candidates and leaders in your state capital, for example, who suddenly become very quiet on this issue. Because really with the Supreme Court taking on the mantle and in 1973 usurping all the rights of the states, it's really given an excuse to a lot of folks to say, you know, a lot of times they're like, oh, well, you know, I'm just a state legislator. Of course I'm pro-life. But they don't really have to do that much. Well, now, with the Supreme Court's decision, what it's, the decision is going to go back to the state legislatures where it belongs. It, and now you're going to have Republicans who've said that they are pro-life actually have to be pro-life. And they're going to come under attack. Planned Parenthood, for example, is going to go into a lot of red states, states that Planned Parenthood's never been very active in. They're PAC dollars, they're C4 dollars, and they're going to be opposing these candidates, these state Senate candidates, these House of Delegate races that are usually fairly cheap and not a lot of contention are suddenly going to get very contentious because of the issue of abortion. And this is really where the rubber is going to meet the road. And I think we're going to see very quickly who are the pro-life and name only Republicans out there. Um, and, and there's going to be many. In fact, I was talking to um I was talking to a member of Congress not long ago, and it was interesting because I don't think they meant it this way, but we were talking about Dobbs. And, um, you know, I was saying how excited I was. And the member was saying it kind of made the comment of, well, you know, but that's going to mean that they get really you know, vocal and it might give the Democrats something to fight for in the 2022 midterms. And I was saying they're like, true, but also we could save hundreds of thousands of lives. And also gives us something to fight for, you know, like um, and so it, there's actually and I actually think here in Washington, there are probably Republican consultants who don't want Dobbs to turn out uh, on the side of human rights, on the side of, of, of saving preborn lives simply because uh, they will fear, oh, well, we'll turnout will be low on the conservatives, turnout will be low on the Republicans, but they'll be high on the Democrats. The Democrats fear mongering will work and it will cost us control of the House or cost us control control of the Senate that we should be uh, winning because of the disastrous policies of the Biden administration. Um, I would certainly pray that that isn't the case, but I I would be willing to bet there are some uh, in the Republican mainstream who sort of feel that way. They may not say that publicly, but who feel that way. But I think what's interesting and what folks need to understand is the Dobbs decision is not just a notch on our belt. This is not like, I think when we get in 
and you can get like this in Washington, D.C., right? It gets very uh, competitive. I'm a very competitive person. And, and, you know, there's just the fights and there's just like these little tallying or keeping a score. It is not simply like one slash in the scorecard. This is not one victory. This is a significant moment for, for the most important human rights issue of our day. Um, and, and I think we need to keep that in mind. And yes, a victory in Dobbs may mean that Democrats see a spike in fundraising, see a spike in turnout. But that certainly doesn't mean we should not be praying for a victory in Dobbs. It just means we have to work harder. Yeah, I mean, that's an that's an insane sort of cost benefit calculation on behalf of the uh, member, whoever it was. And although very typical. Um, and I yes, I mean, probably... that's a very typical, de- you know, attitude. And, and, I, and I don't think the member meant it uh, when they said it that way. But I was like, oh, yeah, I could see that definitely being a conversation in some of the leadership meetings, because we're thinking, you know, you're thinking about just, you know, this 2022 midterm victory. Uh, you know, I'm thinking about hundreds of thousands of preborn children. Right. Power uh, versus actual an issue of human rights. Um Kristen, I know we're sort of talking about Dobbs as though it's likely a victory, and that may or may not be the case. But I want to ask, sort of looking back on the post-Roe world, what uh, you think the influence of the annual March for Life has been Mm -hmm. um, on the pro-life movement and in the conversation more broadly. Of course, the media um, is always pretty happy to ignore or downplay the presence and the significance of the March for Life um, every single year, for the most part. Uh, so, so looking back, as we we do see younger people being less vehemently pro-abortion than maybe past generations, how has the March for Life specifically influenced um, the the movement and the issue in this country? Well, I think what's so significant about the annual pro-life march is that no other human rights cause in the history of the world turns out more people every single year than the annual March for Life. That's it. No other cause does this. Um, You know, we often have international leaders come to to the Pro-Life March. And Students for Life is honored to always host the National Pro-Life Summits, the world's largest pro-life trainings the day after the march. And we always have a meeting of pro-life leaders from across the globe who come. They come to the summit to get trained, to meet the other pro-life leaders from across the country. And I always get a question from a lot of these leaders of, you know, what's different here in America? You know, I I go back to my country and there's only a few of us who gather at the Pro-Life March. Um, We have a hard time getting any traction on legislation. And really, I mean, I have to bring up American exceptionalism because we are the greatest you know, country in the history of the world. You know, the rest of the world, you're welcome. Um, uh, so it, I'm sure they love love me saying that. But it's it's so interesting is that and what's so different about the American pro-life movement is that we have grit and we have always had grit. You know, in 1973, when the Supreme Court said seven men ruled that abortion should be legal and up until the moment of birth for whatever reason, and sometimes with taxpayer funds, when that happened, the message was sit down, shut up. The issue is settled. It's done. We've washed our hands of it. And we said, no, we became those annoying people that you don't want to have at your dinner party because, you know, oh, no, when I invite Kristen, we're always going to end up talking about the one thing you're probably not supposed to talk in in polite company at the dinner table. We refuse to be silent. 
And I think that when I look at pro-life movements across the globe is we never gave up. We never did the polite thing and went away. We refused and we had that grit and that determination. And that's what I love so much about the pro-life movement, because no matter what the polls said, no matter who was in Congress, no matter who was sitting in the White House, no matter what they threw at us, we never gave up. That is so true. Um, and as we wrap up, Kristen, uh, you were talking about something that uh, reminded me of, of my favorite thing of talking to pro-life activists and, and members of the pro-life movement. I want to ask you how the pro-life movement is different than just the sort of general conservative movement, mm. because obviously you're, you, you work in the conservative movement, but you work in the pro-life movement, which is different mm. in some interesting ways. What I like most, um, and this is kind of a leading question, is that you bring in and you work with very different um, sorts of people from very different backgrounds, not typical conservative backgrounds or typical Republican backgrounds, but people who have had really negative personal experiences, people from um, minority communities, uh, you, you really you work with such a such an interesting and rich uh, swath of the country. And I, I'm curious as how you would answer that question of how the pro-life movement is, is in and of itself sort of a different kind of entity. You just confirmed we are best friends, so congratulations. Um, that you know, that's actually the messaging I, I I actually use when I go and I sit at you know Republican leadership meetings. Of uh, you're welcome. The pro life movement is actually bringing more diversity, new people to the conservative movement. Um, you know, I do a lot of polling with Students for Life and our Institute for Pro-Life Advancement. And I know what the brand of the pro-life movement is. I also know what the brand of the conservative movement is. And I have to tell you, the numbers aren't good for conservatives and the word Republican, especially when you talk with this, the largest voting demographic in America, Gen Z and Gen Y. Um, but when we talk about the issue of abortion, when we talk about this human rights issue, it is our opportunity as conservatives to show, to show the rest of America how much we love, how much we care, and how we put our money where our mouth is. And it is a way for us to really start that conversation. We believe at Students for Life in the kind of evangelical model of belong, you know, believe, belong, behave. Because we know first somebody has to feel like, you know, they have to believe what we're saying, then they belong, then they behave. But a lot of times we find on campuses, it's the opposite, it can be belong, believe, behave. And it kind of shocked me where we had people who would belong to our groups and start joining our meetings who didn't really believe. And I started asking questions of, you know, why are you coming to a pro-life event? Or why are you um, hanging out with us if you're not fully sure where you stand on the issue of abortion? And it was interesting having these conversations with these young people. We found that Okay, for a lot of folks, they they first have to know you. They have to know your heart. And we found that young people were coming to our groups, not maybe fully even understanding all the issues surrounding abortion, not even fully um, actualizing the violence that happens within the abortion uh, clinic doors every day, but saying, I like these people. They care. And they're willing to go out in public and do the hard thing, face the scorn of their professors and peers to stand up for somebody else, to stand up for the other. I, I want to know more about those people. And then once they kind of get in the fold, then they, then they start to realize, oh, yeah. And I also believe these things, too. I, 
oh my gosh, I didn't know this about the abortion industry, or this is their predatory business, or they're founded by a racist, and you know, all of these things. And then they actually start to behave. Then they start to participate in our movement. And I think that's what's so um, unique about the pro-life movement is that we have this opportunity to bring folks who come from varying backgrounds um, together to see this really as a human rights issue. Our generation doesn't see this as a mere political issue at all. And you can see that by the makeup of any of our Students for Life events. They're very, uh, as you mentioned, uh, diverse uh, events. Um, But it's actually a wonderful opportunity for the conservative movement to first get them to belong and then introduce them to the broader movement of, of these principles principles of limited government, uh, of why we're against things like socialized medicine, you know, um, and, and you can really start to have those meaningful conversations once they're willing to listen to you, once they realize, wow, these people really do care. And so that's really the messaging I try to give when I go to conservative or Republican events is, you know, don't just discount the pro-lifers or just be, you know, kind of put us over here. Pro-life is a critical part of the conservative viewpoint for America. And it really should be, I, I would... I believe the kind of outreach arm, this this issue of abortion should be the outreach arm for the broader conservative movement, because it it gives us the opportunity to show America um, and show this generation how much we really care. So uh, it's for 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 that reason, it it really becomes belong, believe, behave. Hmm. Yeah, I I think a lot of people, especially in the Republican Party and conservative movement, don't understand that. But it is very true. As we say here all the time, the culture war is the big tent. The website you can go to, (laughs) uh, studentsforlife.org slash fight. Kristen Hawkins, president of Students for Life. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. I probably didn't get myself in too much of trouble with this. Maybe just a little bit, but thanks for having me. I I think you're good. Uh, You've been listening to another edition of the Federalist Radio Hour. I'm Emily Jashinsky, culture editor here at the Federalist. We'll be back soon with more. Until then, be lovers of freedom and anxious for the fray. 